0: I Was a Teenage Pharisee by Mike Moore This book is gratefully and sincerely dedicated to the Bethany who said my previous book was missing something as to my walk with the Lord nudging me to write this one. I don't know if i fixed that problem, but here is my best attempt. Grateful thanks to everyone who shared a story or quotable blurb and for those who helped me proofread and set up this book. In this book, Mr. Moore has incorporated numerous testimonials from real people, sometimes with names of people and places changed, to protect privacy, and has also quoted various excerpts from materials posted publicly online by Brethren Writers Living and Dead. Introduction, in which the author vows vainly to avoid repeating ground covered in previous works. In the beginning, and in the end, it's about growth. When you're a child, of course, but also after that. Your body is supposed to develop. Your strength, your endurance, your agility, your senses, and all the rest. Your capacity for thinking is supposed to develop too. Your knowledge, your judgment, your insight, your intuition, and perhaps above all, your wisdom. Your capacity for feeling is supposed to develop also. Your resilience, your empathy, your confidence, your ability to engage, commit, and stick with things along with your ability to walk away. Perhaps most of all, you are to develop in your ability to love. Although it's the most natural of things, the process of growth is also pretty mysterious. Hard to be calculating and premeditated, let alone budgeted, about growth. But we like to systematize everything. We just do. We like meal and nutrition packages, we like school curricula, we like fitness regimens. We like policies, procedures, and above all, standardization. We like clear mission and vision statements, and systematically checking to make sure absolutely everyone is at all times quantifiably on message, measurably on task, and graphably on board with our exciting new initiatives moving forward, ramping up, and rolling out over the next fiscal year. We're not terribly into people doing their own thing, or figuring it out as they go along nowadays. We are perhaps not as clear as we should be about the fact that one size does not fit all, and that in several important ways, growth is therefore a deeply individual thing, with a different landscape spread out before each of us every single day. When I was a child, my parents eagerly awaited my growth in spiritual things. That's what this book is supposed to be about, I guess. Growth in spiritual things and what can go wrong in upstanding Christian environments in which children are trying to grow. My parents looked after all of my other kinds of growing, too, as best they could. I always had food. Often it was Fruit Loops or Kraft Dinner and maple leaf wieners or sandwiches made from Wonder Bread with Smucker strawberry jam. And although this kind of grub might scandalize many nowadays, physically I turned out healthy as a horse. When I'm on my game, colds and flus that rampage through the high school in which I teach simply turn tail and run, whimpering. I barely leave my computer for months at a time, and I have what medical professionals repeatedly describe as really excellent blood pressure. Even though as far as emotional growth is concerned, our family wasn't warmly demonstrative... Sometimes there were laughs, frequently there were relatives around, and often we listened to music, were offered music lessons, or even had people visit who played instruments right there in our house. Hymns, of of course. A lot of our affection got shown to our pets rather than to each other, but at least there were usually cats and dogs and other pets and farm animals to feed and look after. If you aren't able to hug one another, at least you can make sure, together, that the family animals feel loved and looked after. The normal, everyday stuff was pretty okay in our house. It must be said, however, that there was something insidiously unwholesome about those elements that were supposed to be providing what was presented to us as a Christian upbringing. They did not end up in my growing up to become a Christian who was as healthy, happy, singy, grateful, and crucif-blingy as one might have hoped. This book is partly about that too, I guess. Christian Upbringings Going Somewhat Off the Rails And it goes beyond simply pointing out that, hey, a Christian upbringing can go down pretty dark paths. It talks about those paths, and tries to learn about them. It tries to find a reason why a Christian upbringing might go wrong to begin with. And I have to admit, I find it downright creepy and cult-like that seemingly whenever anyone at all simply mentions not having had an entirely good experience with their Christian upbringing or church, the room or the internet, immediately blows up with this kind of thing.
1: I don't see why you're all attacking Christians who only want to serve the Lord. Satan laughs every time this kind of thing happens. Stop tearing down the Lord's people. You're not perfect either, so just be quiet.
2: Christians who talk negative are disobeying the clear teaching of Scripture. We are to rejoice and think on whatsoever things are good. It truly saddens me that you think you can speak that way. Be positive. You're helping no one criticizing people. People will be driven away from the Lord with all your talking. No one will find Jesus talking to you people, that's for sure.
3: Okay, but the secret to being happy is follow the example of the Lord Jesus. You will never be happy looking at the failures of others. God forgives me even though daily failures are there. Thank God for the promise of a new sinless body. Walk looking up to him instead of down at your feet or around at others. It's all about that. Where's the good in talking about this stuff?
0: There is no perfect church. If there was one, I wouldn't join, as I'd only ruin it. As senior youth pastor, I have to tell you, stop looking for perfect. It does not exist. Get over yourself. Praise the Lord.
4: I just think it's so sad that people can't just be happy in Jesus. It must be so hard to walk around hanging on to the past and being so bitter and negative every day. I know, I find it much more encouraging and Christ-pleasing to just walk around quietly witnessing for the Lord. For example, by singing worship songs in the grocery aisles. Anyway... I'd rather do that than backstab my fellow brothers and sisters in him.
0: And on and on and on. Hey, don't talk about that stuff. Don't make us look bad. No dissatisfied customers allowed. As if finding one fault threatens the validity of the whole somehow, while showing that you'd need a perfect church to be happy. So, enforced positivity. Smiles only. Like, if church isn't working for a guy, and he says so, he's saying Jesus doesn't work. It makes me wonder, do these people go on sites for anorexics, depressives, addicts, and survivors of molestation by priests, and then aggressively question the need to simply talk about this stuff like human beings? Do they somehow feel threatened by it? I'm a big believer in light and truth. Discretion is great and all but I will not pay for it by sacrificing truth and dealing with unpleasant facts. In fact, I don't think it can be bought in that coin at all. Of course, if one looks, one can find on occasion folks online and in person who may be willing to speak frankly about both sides of a Christian upbringing, the whole story. I have even gotten permission to quote many of them in this book, mostly under pseudonyms. I think it's pretty cool to have their insights, and I feel honored to be able to include them. Be forewarned. I've said a lot of this stuff in my blog already. Not all of it, though. And it's more of a giant scrapbook of stuff rather than a cohesive doctrinal system or master's thesis of some kind. Bear with me. I'm going to try and take this somewhere. Part 1. Normals, whatever you're used to. Chapter 1. My Roots in which conversion experiences and church worship are looked at in characteristically exhaustive, rambling, disjointed detail. I'm trying to be taken seriously when I write stuff, and I often write about Christian things. I'm looking to be accepted with open arms as someone writing a book which takes a solid look at Christian community and upbringing. I'm exploring what they have to do with reaching out to and finding God himself. And what can go wrong with that? So I feel this pressure. I feel like I'm supposed to start a book like this by saying something like, As a worship team leader and then
1: youth pastor in a loving church environment, and then moving on from there to my post-secondary theological educational career, including undergraduate, seminary, and doctoral studies, as well as 18 years as a faculty member of an evangelical seminary, I have been nurtured and formed by evangelical communities and convictions and believe strongly in them.
0: But I won't, because I'm not, and I didn't, and I haven't, and also I don't for the most part, obviously. But I was raised Christian, all right. And I am a Christian. I really am. Not professionally or anything in my soul, though. In my life. No fish on my car, but still. I went to church an awful lot growing up, and I took it all very seriously. My church was probably a bit different from a lot of people's. I was raised in a Plymouth Brethren group. If you have no idea what that is, it wasn't terribly different from a traditional Baptist or Pentecostal or Presbyterian church. We believed in the Bible, we believed in Jesus, we believed in heaven and hell, and Jesus had died so we could go to the former and escape the latter. We came into church every Sunday morning. We sang songs to God and prayed to him. We took communion every Sunday to commemorate and show our gratitude and appreciation for Christ's sacrifice for us. One thing that makes talking about our group difficult is that it believes firmly in not taking a name. It believes that we are the Lord's and to take any name but his would be to deny it and then be merely associated with some church because we didn't think we were just some church. We were more scriptural than the others. If you see us on Facebook or webpages, you will often see the words so-called put before Plymouth Brethren, so we can deny calling ourselves that. No, it's other people who are calling us Brethren or Plymouth Brethren. In all the various evangelical fundamentalist churches that are out there, it's the same. Some people were raised very strictly, and others much less so. For some, church was just one part of the week, and for others... It was kind of the core of absolutely everything. For some, love and enthusiasm were the focus, and for others, it was solemn reverence, doctrinal correctness, and righteous living that were mainly valued. Our group focused on the latter. There are many different Plymouth Brethren churches of various kinds, most of which have little or nothing to do with one another anymore, though they all share the same roots, There are Plymouth Brethren Groups which are more or less exactly like any Free Methodist or Baptist or Pentecostal church, and there is the lunatic fringe of the movement as well. Growing up, we knew that our Tunbridge Wells Brethren Group was a fairly strict, rules-based one, certainly compared to Open Brethren Groups. We also knew that there were other closed or exclusive Brethren Groups which were so much stricter than our own that it is really necessary to use the C-word about them. Cult. They have a single worldwide leader with business interests on four continents and privately owned jets to take him around, ruling his group by weekly decree. Members required to cut off really all social contact with anyone who falls into disfavor with the group or with that man of God on earth and his arbitrary rules, the latter two being the same thing. Even if said people are members of their own family. But in our group, We didn't have Bruce Hales or anyone like him. But a few generations ago, we'd all been part of the same group. They got where they are today from where we all were back then. An awful lot of people living in North America today were raised to be Christians. Not all of them ended up that way, of course. Some now feel that their church experience truly was an important, healthy, wholesome part of growing up, and others end up taking great exception to parts of it. And the funny part is, you can't point to the ones who believe in God today and see the positive experience, and then point to the atheists and see them claiming a negative experience. It's not like that. It's more complicated. Many atheists think church was and is a really good thing for kids to grow up with, very comforting and all that, good moral lessons. And many Christians nowadays had what can only be described as a terrible time growing up with a Christian upbringing as they did. And the atheists certainly aren't likely to know less Bible or have less understanding of doctrine than the Christians. It's weird. For me, church could not have been presented as a more crucial, serious thing than it was. So I took it very seriously, from a very young age. I read the Bible every day. I did my best with everything about my church upbringing. I did everything I was supposed to do. But then things happened. God was one of those things. This book is about all that. INTRODUCTION TO GOD I was brought out to grown-up church, brought up under the sound of the word, from birth. This meant that before I'd learned to walk, I'd heard many hours of lengthy passages of the Bible slowly read in halting 17th century English by people who mostly had very little post-secondary education. And that 17th century stuff's not easy to get through. Nevertheless, the thee and thou and hast and didst were a big part of how we approached God. We wanted to be orthodox, traditional, reverent. We didn't feel qualified to change things all around just to modernize stuff. It's safe to say that church, which we called meeting, was a central part of our week. The week started with Sunday, which we called Lord's Day. It wasn't thought of as the weekend so much as the first day of the week. And we started the week with Lord's Day. Tried to start each week off right. The routine was to get up, read your chapter of the Bible in the 17th century translation, and go out to the Sunday morning church service. Then home for lunch. Often families invited one another over for lunch and spent time together discussing the Sunday morning meeting before returning to the meeting hall to do Sunday school, which was at 3 p.m. Then supper and a return to the hall for gospel meeting at 7 p.m. Monday had no church service, so it was just your own chapter read in the morning and family Bible reading after supper. Tuesday, though, there was an hour-long prayer meeting at the hall at 7.30 p.m. We got down on our hands and knees on the floor to pray, faces into the seats of our wooden chairs. Prayers were mainly for sick old people, who were always getting smitten and afflicted in diverse ways. Mostly it was just men who got down on the floor in this way, the ladies demurring for reasons of age or modesty. I remember a lot of praying for the complicated ailments of the old people, and for people over-preaching in African countries which Google now reveals to be far more cosmopolitan than I'd then pictured. I remember being delighted every prayer meeting when someone suggested the closing hymn, and we could all spring up and sit back down in the chair, often with carpet marks on our palms." Wednesday, back to just your chapter in the morning and family Baba reading after supper. In high school, brass band practice was on Wednesday night, which meant I was allowed to go to that, but not on any overnight trips, of course. If band practice had been on say Tuesday or Thursday nights, I wouldn't have been allowed to go under any circumstances as there was meeting. On family vacations, we had to make sure we were in locales with an affiliated brethren meeting in them on meeting nights so as to never miss any of the five. I remember our family avoiding Dorothy, New Jersey at one point in the 1970s when on vacation, as my father didn't want to have to shave his beard just to go out to prayer meeting there. That assembly was known then for being one of the strictest ones, and facial hair for men, and women wearing cosmetics or trimming their hair or wearing nail polish— were very frowned upon. Thursday night, we had an hour-long Bible discussion meeting. Men shooting extremely formally worded comments back and forth as we worked our way verse by verse through books of the Bible. In my memory, I can still hear it.
5: And so it will be wonderful on that day, brother. Not going to judge after the sight of his eyes. Even the sight of our eyes sometimes deceives. He's going to judge with equity what's right.
6: Solomon had the wisdom to judge with the sight of his eyes when he put the proposition up between those two harlots about whose baby it was. He had to prove it out by the sight of his eyes. But he had the wisdom to do that. The Lord has wisdom without that. He doesn't
7: have to see it. He already sees it. Even now it says, His eyelids try the children of men. What does that mean? Well, I want to speak carefully, but even if God shut his eyes... He still can try the children of men, knows the very thoughts and intents of our hearts. And if this is true in connection with what we've been saying in the coming day, how much more, brethren, today do we need to live uprightly before God? We don't get away with anything. We don't hide anything. Some of you know I've had some experiences that have made me realize that we need to live uprightly before God because... Things may be brought publicly. Things may be splashed in the press. And are we living uprightly before God? Do we realize we can't hide from Him? Sometimes we think, as young people, as children, we can hide things from our parents. We say our parents don't know about it. We do this or we do that. And nobody knows. Sometimes, perhaps even those of us who are older, we think we can hide things from our brethren. We did things and didn't seem like anybody found out about it, but rather his eyelids try the children of men. He knows the very thoughts and intenses of our hearts. He looks into the very recesses and crevices of our hearts.
0: It generally took two or three weeks to get through a single chapter of the Bible. And as the better informed folk died off or were kicked out in church divisions, reading meeting changed. Things got shallower and less focused on the chapter studied. Increasingly, Thursday night reading meeting became time-filling stories about things dead men had said back in the day. Old Brother McDowell certainly knew how to shoot down a scoffer back then. Atheists beware. Friday and Saturday were chapter in the morning and family Bible reading after supper days with frequent special meetings happening, visiting speakers, youth group stuff, long weekend all-day meetings. In addition to the actual hour spent in the hall, it was routine for people to stand around outside and talk afterward for perhaps an hour or two. Kids, too. Of course, there were no cell phones or pocket game systems or sports equipment or anything. So people actually talked to one another for hours from an early age. It was weird. Some families had lots of kids, little armies of brothers who could roughhouse together and yell and run around with balls and things at home. And homeschooling wasn't so big back then. I'll bet all that really brightened and warmed up the isolationist, separation from this world lifestyle of our culture for them. But I was the only son in our house, and my sister was four years younger, so I grew up pretty much by myself. I had a few cousins who were around my sister's age, most of them living far away, and a visit from them was a real highlight of my year. If you were high school age, every second Saturday evening there was young people's, a Bible lecture junk food, and social time for young people at someone's house or the meeting hall in a neighboring town. Of course, there was never any video or computer content of any kind. It was always a media-free affair, no screens or recorded music of any kind. There was sometimes singing, accompanied by guitar or piano, if young people's wasn't in a meeting hall. This was a real treat for me, as we didn't get musical accompaniment at church. No musical instrument or screen of any kind ever entered those hallowed halls. I loved when someone who could play guitar was in town and there was a hymn sing. I always wanted to learn how to play guitar and sing vocal harmony parts. Holiday-long weekends, there were often all-day meetings or a Bible conference in some city or other. Bible conferences involved people traveling hither and yon across North America to attend three days of back-to-back all-day meetings with 40-minute breaks between them one hoped that the local guys we'd heard a bit too much of would pipe down a bit so we could hear some fresh voices. All meetings were tape-recorded and distributed. They could be purchased by mail, too. Now it's all MP3s on the net, of course. Generally, all-day meetings ran from about 8 a.m. to about 8 p.m., and teenagers had various group-dating-encouraging activities after all that. Chaperones skates, sings, hayrides, sleigh rides, gym rentals, and so on. That was how most of our parents had gotten together. By the time I came along, though, girls were buying out of that system heavily. They still dressed up magnificently, but they hung in packs and didn't want to talk to guys they didn't know, or be seen to be dating anyone or to be interested in that. Before I'd attended kindergarten, I heard many hundreds of hours of King James Bible discussion. Men sitting around in dress shirts and ties taking turns speaking. Sermons from a single man addressing the room were less frequent. The latter was for Bible conferences and visiting guest speakers only. There were no formal local pastors who sermonized, though there were traveling out-of-town clergy and missionaries who were officially appointed, church-funded, and on tour. We called that being on the Lord's Lord's work. work. The official job title was laboring brother. By my time, you had to be selected by your assembly to hold that title. Before that, Clarence Lundeen told me, in a letter he sent me, A man's talent made room for itself. My dad bought cassette tape recording gear from Radio Shack and recorded many of those visiting speakers until he had an extensive tape library of their talks. I helped him set up the mic stands and work the recording levels and copy the tapes for shut-in old folks to listen to. These talks were a big part of my childhood. I loved being a junior sound engineer. I still have a lot of my dad's ancient recording stuff. He didn't need it anymore once they silenced him. Very often the talks were worded rather like this. Now
6: I think you and I realize that in the religious world around about us, the particular ministry entrusted to the Apostle Paul has very little claim upon the hearts of so many. And when that which was specially entrusted to Paul is presented, They turn a deaf ear to it. Oh, that was Paul wrote that, or Paul said that. And they find various excuses for turning a deaf ear to the marvelous truth that was entrusted by a risen and an ascended Savior to his servant Paul. I believe the incident here is more than simply a warning of how very, very easily any one of us can slip from this place of precious privilege back down to the level which we once had left, leaving behind completely and absolutely all the religious activity that was going on around them. And dear fellow believer, you and I who know the joy of being gathered to the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ, know that the enjoyment of this sweet and happy privilege involves separation. Separation to the person. Of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, bearing His name alone. Now I know that the very sound of the word "separation" causes some folks to shudder, as though it were a restricting term, and it were going to involve uh, some very, very difficult steps to take. But uh, I believe when it comes to the claim of a heart that really loves and a heart that we. Bonds to that love, separation is not difficult, but very, very, very precious. I love the memory of that brother. I remember one day he came into where I was working, and he had tears in his eyes. I said, Brother Watson, what's happened? Well, he said, I just saw Sister So-and-so pass by on the street. And I said, but what's happened? Why do you look so sad? Albert, I'm afraid. I'm afraid I saw as she passed by the first signs of trying to make herself appear as those who do not love the Lord. I was so surprised. That young sister that he was speaking about wasn't even gathered to the Lord's name, nor was anyone in her family. She was just someone who, from the Sunday school effort, had been attending the meetings and attending them faithfully. And rejoiced in the Lord, but he had seen, and he discerned rightly, he had seen the first sign of turning toward those things which would lead her astray. And she was led astray. She wandered away. She missed the path.
0: I have stacks of my dad's tape recordings of this kind of thing. Ministry for the Saints. Stuff that was worded to sound like the ministry books written in the Victorian era as much as our local guys could muster. But people who were really good at talking like that slowly died off during my lifetime. It often isn't quite so formal sounding nowadays, though I sometimes hear guys who are pretty much tribute acts to the men who spoke like this. Even the vocal cadences are being replicated by people not too much older than me. People who aren't ashamed to use the words afresh or feign or sundered, just as if they speak like that all the time. And sing song, Kermit the Frog voices. Growing up, this was what learning about Jesus most often sounded like. And I had one of those brains that involuntarily tape records everything, whether I like it or not, so I could only sit there helplessly and record every single word, whatever it was, for the first two decades of my life, roughly six hours a week of it minimum. Our churches were purposely undecorated. The rooms in which we sat to worship God were completely plain, lacking anything on the walls besides a few stark, text only Bible verses in that same 17th century English. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Psalm 133, verse 1. No crosses or religious paintings of any kind. Our meeting room or gospel hall had beige walls and green carpet, wooden chairs. Most of the brethren halls were more or less the same as our local one. Very few of them looked anything like churches inside or out. There was usually a clock audibly humming and ticking away the hour, while some ceiling fans wobbled throughout the meeting, trying to move the deathly still air. Air conditioners weren't a part of our churches around here. The windows were often frosted so as to let light in, but keep anyone from seeing in or out. There was no choir, band, organ, or piano and the singing was always only done by all of us in a slow, somber a cappella, which seemed to slide ever lower and slower with each verse we sang. I was always jealous of brethren assemblies who had members who could sing parts to decorate the singing up. It wasn't okay to sing in a showy way, but a subtle harmony vocal that blended in without drawing any attention to the person humbly singing was appreciated. Obviously, my experience of church when I was little was my first experience of God, too, and the God stuff was slow and quiet, done in hushed voices and odd tones, couched in archaic, solemn language. I liked it okay. It felt ancient and deep. It felt important, like a dark and hidden magic. For children, there was no running in or out of or even anywhere near the church, especially on Sunday. We weren't allowed to watch Chariots of Fire, but Eric Little, who'd refused to run on Sunday in the 1923 Olympics and then gone on to be a missionary in China, was held up as an example to us. There was very little laughter and precious few smiles there. There were no sudden movements. There were no loud sounds. But I was a quiet child, so all of this wasn't as impossible for me as it might have been for many. I didn't love church. I didn't hate church. It was just normal, regular. It was like the sun rising and setting. We were told the gospel several times a week. God was big, we were told, the biggest. He knew everything and could do anything, and what he mostly did was watch us to see if we sinned. He was perfect, he was holy, and nothing was good enough for him. You thought Batman was awesome? Well, God thought Batman was foolish, defiling, and a waste of a child's time. Everything and everyone was imperfect before God's eyes. But he'd sent his son to fix all of that bad stuff, because he loved us. His son had suffered deeply and long, and that was definitely our fault. If we were willing to reach out to him, experiencing him in the form of Jesus, he would not send us to hell for all eternity after all. If we really meant it, if we really believed, and we showed our gratitude for a sacrifice only if we obeyed the Bible and what it said about Batman. Only if we obeyed our parents only if we read our Bibles, prayed, and came out to meeting. Otherwise, one wondered if we were even saved at all. So we came to sit in that room and remember all of that, and dutifully feel gratitude and shame. Grateful shame, shameful gratitude. I could sit as still as a rock. We sang incredibly slow, dark, morbid hymns that I loved, with words like, Jesus, spotless Lamb of God, Thou hast bought me with Thy blood. I would value not beside Jesus, Jesus, crucified. Or,
8: O head once full of bruises, so full of pain and scorn, Mid of the sore abuses Marked with a crown of thorns, O Heady, now surrounded with brightest majesty In death once bowed and wounded on the accursed tree Thou countenance transcendent, thou life-creating song Two worlds on Thee dependent, yet bruised and speed upon. O Lord, what Thee tormented, with thou sin's heavy load. We had the debt augmented, which Thou didst pay in blood. We give thee thanks unfeigned, O Savior, friend in need. For what thy soul sustained when thou for us didst bleed. Grant us to lean unshaken upon thy faithfulness. Until to glory taken we see Thee face to face. Or, When we survey that wondrous cross On which the Lord Dying crimson from
0: Singing, though I hated my voice, and I cut my teeth in terms of vocabulary building and wordsmithing on these hymns. I wanted to know what all the words meant and their different shades of meaning. To this day, my favorite songs are slow, quiet, sad, somber ones with a haunting, dark, tragic beauty. Pink Floyd, for example, Leonard Cohen, Nick Cave, Johnny Cash, Neil Young. I've tried. sing loud rock songs, but my voice was schooled to sing these quiet, slow, sad songs. The hymn writers generally outlined a clear contrast between, on the one hand, the painful, humiliating ordeal of the Lord Jesus on this wicked earth where we still temporarily are and evil rules everywhere, and, on the other hand, his shining, radiant honor in heaven where we won't have to worry about keeping from sinning anymore where we hope to go, one day soon. Jesus dying in agony for an unheeding, depraved world. A shining golden heaven. Our doleful singing emphasized the former, and didn't really convey the latter to the same degree. For my part, I wallowed joyfully in the misery of the former, while the latter always rang by contrast rather false and emptier, seemed kind of like a distant afternote tacked on to the main point, which was about guilt and misery. If heaven was anything like Sunday morning church, and I feared it might be, I was in no hurry to go there. We sat, and we prayed, and we sang. It helped keep us from sinning. We sure were important that our sin could cause God to have to come to earth and die. Sin was powerful stuff. No doubt all this was far from how the songwriters intended the songs to work. But self-abnegation and taking personal responsibility for the sufferings of Christ seemed to be a big part of each and every hymn, the ones we sang anyway. It made us central to the whole thing. We were the sinners. We were also the redeemed. We had to always remember to follow Jesus faithfully or we'd stray and shipwreck our lives. We had to always remember to be grateful. God couldn't bless us if we made bad choices, so we had to always be terribly vigilant. Sunday morning was about solemnity. Sometimes we sang only the first part of the hymn to avoid the happy part at the end of it, especially if said hymn wasn't being sung at the end of the service when it was time to perhaps allude to the less horrible stuff and go home. We were reliving the sufferings and death of Christ. The happy part came at the very end of the story. When that part came, we went home. Our Christianity began and ended with the death of Christ for us. Many of our favorite hymns called us, O Sinner, and Wretch, and Such a Worm as I, and that kind of thing. That felt good. It felt humble. When men prayed, they often spoke of us in those terms, too, at length. They intoned like solemn sorcerers, speaking of all of us as poor, wretched sinners with dark, deceitful hearts, walking around in our bodies of humiliation, trying really hard not to sin. Because if we let go for one moment and indulge ourselves for an hour, man would we sin. From the beginning, approaching God was about being very, very still, very, very quiet, and terribly somber. There were those four meetings each week for adults, and the additional Sunday school for kids. They were all quite somber occasions. If any one of them was going to get a little more energetic or fun, it was most likely going to be the Sunday school. Kids sat through the solemn Sunday morning remembrance of our Lord and his death one from infancy with the adults. There was no alternate activity for children. It was the most important thing a Christian could do each week, and it wasn't designed for kids. There were extended periods of silent contemplation. There was no sermon except maybe a short talk at the very end, time permitting. It was mostly a series of solemn hymns being sung, alternating with quiet prayers and solemn Bible readings, all in the archaic English. Kids certainly weren't given any role in it and had to be quiet and still, for an hour to an hour and a half depending. When very small, they were fed Cheerios from Tupperware containers and perhaps allowed to color a bit in stillness and utter silence. Noisy or mobile children were often hoisted out of the room and many were spanked in the church basement for being disruptive. Some kids got taken out and spanked every single Sunday morning, it seems, sometimes more than once in the same meeting. I don't think my sister or I got taken out of meeting very much at all. We learned to be silent and still for hours at a time, very early on. My parents did not like being embarrassed. On Sundays, between the mid-morning breaking of bread service and the evening gospel service, there was the Sunday school in mid-afternoon for children, after Sunday morning church and not instead of it, Once we'd all sat perfectly still and silent through the morning service in our clip-on ties and shiny dress shoes, or fancy dresses in the case of the little girls, and had gone home and had lunch, we'd be brought back in that afternoon for another hour of Sunday school singing and Bible teaching before being brought back in that evening for the gospel meeting. Apart from Sunday morning meeting, at the others, we were dressed more business casual. Girls had to wear the head covering and a skirt or dress. I had to wear something other than sneakers, nothing with bright colors or stripes or pictures, and something other than shorts or jeans. Beige was king. By comparison, to Sunday morning meeting, mid-afternoon Sunday school, was very kid-friendly. It was a bit quaint and old-fashioned, of course, but the intent was to reach the kids. We knew it was for us. Here is an example of the four kids' wording of one of the typical hymns in the children's hymn book.
8: A little ship was on The sea, it was a pretty sight It sailed along so pleasantly And all was calm and bright The sun was sinking in the west The shore was near at hand And those on board with hearts at rest, thought soon to reach the land. When lo, a storm began to rise, the wind grew loud and strong. It blew the clouds across the skies, it blew the waves along, and all but one were so. Afraid of sinking in the deep His head was on a pillow laid, And he was fast asleep Master, we perish, master, save They cried, their master heard He rose, rebuked the wind and waves and stilled them with a word He to the storm says peace Be still the raging billows cease The mighty winds obey his will And all are hushed in peace Oh well we know it was the Lord, our Savior, and our friend, whose care of those who trust his word will never, never end.
0: That one was one of my favorites, because I liked any hymn that was dramatic, dark, gloomy, and dire, and told a story that might well have ended in the deaths of a whole bunch of people, perhaps by drowning in the sea in a storm in the dark dark, gloomy, dire, solemn, being saved from a horrible death. That was, I felt, what dealing with God was like. Here's another one I loved. Note the dying.
8: Into the tent where a gypsy boy lay. Dying alone at the close of the day News of salvation we carried, said he Nobody ever has told it to me Tell it again, tell it again Salvation story repeat, or and oh, Till none can say of the children of men Nobody ever has told me before Did he so love me, a poor little boy Send unto me the glad tidings of joy Need I not perish, my hand will he hold Nobody ever the story has told Tell it again Tell it again Salvation story Repeat or and o'er Till none can say Of the children of men Nobody ever Has told me before Bending we caught the last Words of his breath Just as he entered The valley of death God sent his son whosoever, said he Then I am sure that he sent him for me Tell it again, tell it again Salvation story repeat or and oh, Till none can say of the children of men Nobody ever has told me before Smiling, he said, as his last sigh was spent I am so glad that for me he was sent Whispered while low sank the sun in the west Lord, I believe, tell it now to the rest Tell it again, tell it again Salvation story repeat or and no till none can say of the children of men nobody ever has told me before.
0: I didn't have to look far for hymns with mentions of death in them. Most of our stuff was like that. We didn't sing terribly well, but singing went on at all meetings. My Facebook friend Elizabeth reports that growing up in Scotland, she went to what were called by others, the Needed Truth Brethren, a group which clearly had organized their harmony singing more than our Tunbridge Wells group had. She says,
9: My first recollection of music in my life was when we went to the Sunday school picnic in Glasgow. The picnic got rained out, so we had to go into this hall, where the refreshments were served first everybody sang if i come to jesus he will make me glad he will give me pleasure when my heart is sad it was a huge sunday school and the picnic included all the parents children and teachers i thought it was a beautiful song we were in the brethren at the time and radios were not allowed being worldly i did not have much opportunity to learn music when i was old enough to attend meetings It was unaccompanied, four-part singing. There was a singing meeting after the prayer meeting, so the saints knew nearly all of the hymns in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Everybody was expected to learn his or her part, whether they could sing or not. The concept was, God hears the crows as well as the nightingales.
0: We TWs did not have scheduled hymn sings on a weekly basis, and seldom had much harmony singing at meetings. I always looked forward to hymnsings, though. We only had a couple of them a year, usually. They were sometimes held on an evening when there was no scheduled meeting, or perhaps after meeting. Hymnsings were never held in the meeting room, because we were generally going to be using an accompanying musical instrument, and we never brought one of those into that building. Things were more solemn and plain in there. Instruments were fun for us rather than fun for God. They were instruments speaking rather than our hearts and voices speaking, we felt. Bruce Anstey, endlessly prolific TW Brethren writer, says The only two instruments Christians use to worship God are their hearts, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, and their lips, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. In Christianity, We only read of singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. We are told to offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. Regardless of this, the distinction between Christian worship and Judaism has been ignored in the denominations. Musical bands, sometimes large orchestras, have become an integral part of today's Christian worship services. It is called a music ministry, but the purpose seems to be more for entertainment of audiences than for ministry. An anonymous commenter on my blog, which mentions this issue, asks, why has the funereal little
1: flock hymn book been assigned a status equivalent to the spoken word of God? And what rationale is used not to have instruments? Has God changed his mind from biblical times and now only likes a cappella, which starts in one key and ends up in a different zip code? Hey, I can't sing either,
0: but come on, at least bring in a piano. The Psalms have always been a sore point with T.W. Brethren. As to this topic, important to remember that we weren't Jews. It was felt so no instruments, no priests with jeweled chess pieces either, no sacrificed oxen, no incense, certainly no trumpets. All in all, Sunday morning was a poker-faced, silent, still thing, nary a candle, a painting, stained glass window, robe, choir, or instrumental music of any kind. No Latin. No recitation of anything that wasn't in the King James Bible. Not a lot of smiles. We dressed in formal clothes with muted colors. Louisa, from my group of brethren, mentions having bought a tie with red in it for a man at her church as a gift, and noting that he never wore it to church on Sunday morning. Louisa says,
3: Finally, I asked his wife, and she told me he could not wear it to breaking of bread because the tie was mostly red and we were not to wear red to breaking of bread because it would make light of Christ's blood. Several years later, their youngest son shot himself to death.
0: A troubling number of comments from Brethren people have these odd, dark little things tacked onto the end of it. But apparently, red was irreverent, disrespectful, not serious, made light. These kinds of things, style, rules, weren't really written down. Yet they were common knowledge. They were somehow absorbed into our skin through the still air of the place. You just knew, or you're supposed to anyway. Now a lot of it just sounds to me like superstition. Conversion Experiences I looked around at school, and I noticed that most kids not raised like me had something different in their lives. There was far less structure, and far fewer eyes on them. They were growing up with at least some opportunity to screw up their lives, to sin, at least a bit. This was before regular folks started slotting their kids into a demanding regimen of ceaseless lessons and sports. Kids ran freer then, so they had opportunity to sin and not just by omissions, by commissions, by going too far, and doing too much. They didn't live with the strict levels of control that we church kids did. Their parents were, in most cases, far less vigilant and prohibitive of all things fun. They were left unattended for longer periods of time, for far too long in some cases, at the one end of tyranny, and at the other, neglect of children and absentee parents. Some kids had a key on a shoelace around their neck, which they used to puncture the tops of juice boxes and puddings, and would let themselves into the house after school, watch whatever TV they wanted, waiting until a parent came home. Some of us, by contrast, had a parent drive us to and from school, and also work in our school all day, and our parents were often our Sunday school teachers too. Our days were terribly, consistently decent. We seemed to be at meeting most of the time. And everyone was freshly showered and nicely dressed there. No one ever smelled of cigarettes or alcohol. No one ever swore. You'd never see a girl's cleavage or anyone's knee there. Growing up, I was pretty much never away from a parent for three minutes at a time. My parents spanked me rather often with a wooden paddle with Bible verses written on it, but I certainly didn't go through what Darlene did. Darlene says,
3: We had no TV, radio, or newspaper. I wasn't allowed to play with neighbors, had to go right home from school, no talking at meals. My dad had Bible study every morning before school. Often I missed the bus, had to walk in freezing weather with a skirt on. I was frozen when I got to school. We were not allowed any outside access by television, radio or newspapers. Schoolwork suffered from lack of knowledge when assignments were due. I was unable to relate often to what teachers or classmates were talking about, as I never heard any news. My father used the stick and belt on us nearly every day. When I was 17, I ran away. They tried to get me home, but I refused.
0: It must be said that Darlene's experience of a local TW Brethren upbringing is neither typical, nor is it unique. I know a lot of Christians who grew up to be absolutely, unequivocally in love With secrets, as concepts and as things they can have themselves, it was T.W. brethren girls who first introduced me to PostSecret.com. I wonder if this is a response to how very watched we always were by everyone, even as young adults. One thing is certain: growing up and going to school, we were a bit odd. Our concept of sin was pretty different from most people's, and our view of ourselves as chronic sinners. We just knew we'd lie and steal and stuff like that if we got the chance. We were pure evil. We knew it. It was the only interesting thing about us, too, we felt. But often, the reality was that we hadn't done much of anything. Didn't intend to do much of anything. Hadn't so much as lied about standing watching V the Final Battle on the silent TVs in the display windows of the stores. Oh, we'd gone ahead and watched those televisions all right, though such a clear hunger for the things of this world. But we admitted it. In retrospect, I think part of this man-would-we-sin focus came from and was fed by our hymns, prayers, and sermons, and how they presented conversion experiences. In part, it stemmed from the fact that all of the very best hymns, all the way from Amazing Grace right on down to Zion Mourns in Fear and Anguish, painted a very dramatic and simple dichotomy of the process. Lost, then Saved. Sinners, then saints, partiers, then brethren people. And I think that we were feeling left out of this equation, many of us, if we were raised in the church. The favorite topic for hymns and sermons was about what satisfied customers we were, now that we had found Jesus, about how very bad everything and we ourselves had been before we found him. This was in other churches called one's testimony. We didn't call it that, and in most cases... We didn't have those, because there'd been no dramatic change, no story at all, really. I was born in this culture, I'm still in it. But we sang the hymns anyway. Human beings make sense of life by crafting it all into stories. It's no different with conversion experiences. The I once was a poor, filthy, raging, out-of-control, drunk, horrible sinner dabbling in the occult and having sex with strangers and swearing, but now I am utterly changed by Christ's finished work into a decent, humble, middle-class, business-casual Christian testimony story is one that really works. This is why it was a central message of so many Victorian and pre-Victorian hymns. And it was a big part of the revival movement, too, after that. That's where we got our hymns from, the revival movement and the Victorian age. Not from Keith Green and the Jesus People movement that were part of the hippy-dippy 1960s and 70s. Those guys certainly wrote enough Christian songs, of course. We never heard any of them, though, growing up. Not reverent. Too jazzy. Wrong century. What most of us church folk had for a testimony didn't really fit the I once
8: was lost, but now I'm found Was blind, but now I
0: see pattern of our hymns at all it was much more i once was too young to understand what my parents were telling me about salvation but once i was three i became a christian before i'd really been anything else and i still am it's nice i guess wouldn't make a very memorable hymn for us to sing i knew that but i was taught it was terribly important that i not sin now because if i did man would i sin i imagined that was why we went to church and had always done that We didn't call them church services, we called them our meetings. And they were meetings, for Sinners Anonymous, protection against ourselves and our tragic, though admittedly untapped, potential for sin. It was our anti-sin maintenance, salvation through church culture. It was our indoctrination. And all this was normal for us. This is what church meant, protection against our own natural depravity. Although one could argue for the total Lutheran tulip depravity of a two-year-old, I suppose, the story many of us had really didn't ring out as very dramatic, and we felt this. We'd been robbed. That story others could tell to rapt audiences, being lost, sinning, really sinning, finding their way to God as seeking teenagers or troubled adults, and finding that God or church structure transformed their lives, made it utterly different than it had been before, we just didn't really have any of that. Those guys were so lucky to have met a God who actually forgave them things they'd actually done. We mostly only understood God's forgiveness as an abstract concept, as theology, as doctrine, something we had to take on faith. We could sing Amazing Grace, but it didn't quite apply. Not as deeply, anyway. Not for us. It always felt weird to sing endlessly about having been rebellious sinning creatures of darkness when we'd been coming out to church almost every evening of the week since before we could remember, and we'd never so much as played a game of cards, seen Disney's The Black Hole, or said a swear word, because we didn't allow ourselves any of that. Our view of the Christian person was of someone who heroically made his way through an evil world, walking a narrow path, saying no, to all of its temptations and pleasures, like the character Christian in the very Puritan John Bunyan's A Pilgrim's Progress. There was nothing in the world for us at all but illusions, like mirages in the desert. To stray from that narrow path and wander into the wasteland that was the world was to invite spiritual death. This excerpt from a lengthy hymn we sang by John Nelson Darby, the man who is often seen as the father of the Brethren movement illustrates this quite clearly.
8: This world is a wilderness wide. We have nothing to seek or to choose. We've no thought in the ways to abide. We've not to regret nor to lose. The Gone before He has marked out the path that we tread It's as sure as the love we adore We have nothing to fear nor to dread There is but that one in the way which his footsteps have marked as his own. And we follow in diligent haste to the seats where he's put on his crown.
0: Bruce Hales, head of the strictest branch of Plymouth Brethren and I have yet been able to discover, writes rather more emphatically,
5: We have to get a hatred an hatred of the Wolt. Unless you've come to a hatred of the world, you're likely to be sucked in by it and
0: seduced by it. You must hate the world, every feature of the world, at every point. You hate it. (music) Testimonies Traditionally, and who am I to flout tradition, Christian people are encouraged to slide their testimonies into any human interaction very early on, starting once they've undergone their dramatic transformative conversion experiences. And much of the focus on Christian activity is upon that one experience. In fact, many don't want to hear much of anything in a hymn or a sermon that doesn't come to bear purely on that single flash-frozen instant the moment I took my first step of faith. Conversionism, my friend Frank calls that, crucicentrism. Soteriology taken to extremes, Frank might write. Frank writes like that, ever declaiming salvific, imminent, mots of which spellcheck has no praxic ken. He's Dr. Frank now. I proofread every sesquipedalistic syllable of inevitably arcane verbiage he wrote in his doctoral thesis for him. In a consumer culture, it should come as no surprise that we tend to view our connection to God in terms of choice, selection that we imagine things in terms of signing up for special limited time offers with unbeatable features and making an informed choice for this package over the ones offered by the store or church up the street some folks nowadays even believe that every time we make a choice we create a whole alternate universe in which a different choice was made by an alternate version of us our own quantum choices rippling across realities creating entire universes that's a pretty grandiose level to take the idolatry of choice to. I chose iPhone, thereby creating an alternate universe in which I chose Samsung. I made that universe, which sprang into being and revolves around my choice. No universe exists in which I chose BlackBerry. I'm not saying choice isn't a part of the New Testament, just that we can get to the point where we're pretty much Western consumer types saying we saved ourselves by making a wise choice for Christ. Just like we were wise in choosing VHS... DVD, iPhone, American Airlines, AT&T, and Volvo. I know people in Christian circles who do more to worship that aforementioned moment they took their first step of faith than to recognize anything Jesus ever taught or chose to do in his life on earth. In this mindset, he exists purely to be the product, an afterlife insurance package. He has been left no personhood at all. I have to notice that Back in the day, the songs we sang mostly seemed to be about needing to get saved, getting saved, what Jesus did to save us, how little we deserved to be saved, and how bad we were now at acting like people who were truly, gratefully saved. Comparatively little was sung about the journey taking place afterward, or anything Jesus said or did that wasn't directly about us and our sin, like we were supposed to keep on returning over and over again to that one moment the moment we got saved, our testimony. I suppose I'd better do that, right? In my fondest imaginings, I kind of wish my testimony sounded a little something like
5: this. In the 70s, I was a roadie for kiss. I did drugs, drank alcohol, had an awful lot of casual sex, mostly with prom queens, models, and movie stars. I smoked cigarettes, swore, and all the rest of it. I'd sit up late at night playing guitars and singing with the band and swimsuit models talking about, well, whatever came into our heads. I thought life couldn't get any better. But then one day, after many years of enjoying every single thing this lifestyle had to offer, I realized that I wanted more. In a hotel room in Las Vegas after the show where Gene lit his head on fire, I pulled out a Bible that had been left in the nightstand by a faithful Gideon and read it cover to cover that very night. Suddenly, just like an explosion from one of the flash bombs I'd ignite beside the hamster and God of Thunder, I realized that the way I was living was wrong now and that it was time to come to Jesus to meet the real God of Thunder. I wanted to read and pray all night and go to church every day, so I got saved. Tears streaming down my face, I went to a church, and kind people told me how to live a new life, a clean life, a life I could be proud of, a life like theirs. The most beautiful girl in the church married me. Once she was certain I'd found the Lord, and now I own a Christian bookstore, preach to kids on the street, set up the sound system for the worship team at my church, and have a radio program at Four Beautiful Children. Or, I'd no doubt really have your attention
0: and offers to speak at your church if my testimony was quite a bit more like this.
10: Before I found Jesus, I was black and living in the hood. I ran with a nefarious street gang selling illegal recreational drugs facilitating drive-by shootings, misappropriating cars, indulging in toots of crack, benefiting financially from prostitutes who got the back of my hand if they were short on the cheddar, drinking copious amounts of grain, taking the Lord's name in vain, and all the rest of that up in there, you know what I'm saying? You know what? No matter how much hair on I did, no matter how many fine ladies I got down with all at the same time, no matter how much rap music I listened to, it just wasn't enough. I wasn't happy. I knew I could have more, you feel me? One day on the juice and on my way to lay, I heard on some broke ass shorties who our gang some Benjamins walking down second I heard the dopest sound in the whole world. I walked into a church where they were singing some deep fat hymns and I listened to that preacher speak. Tears streaming down my face, I really listened, you know what I'm saying? It was like homeboy was speaking just to me. G told me I was a sinner, what up, and that I needed Jesus to forgive all my stanky, ratchet sins. I got saved. You feel me? It was tight. Ever since that day, I've just lived my life to please him, and now I own Mother Faith Records, a label that produces Christian gangster rap music that saves souls from the street hourly. My new album drops this week, yo. I gave up drinking and drugging and hoes for Jesus, not to be confused with the double Award nominee recording artist of that name, and I don't regret it for a moment. Jesus met me in the hood. That's actually the name of my first mother Faith and album featuring sick beats by Fresh Pastor Slice, Harris, and Michael W. Smith. The pastor's fine little blonde daughter married me once she was sure I'd truly found the Lord and was on fire for him. I tapped that Donk nightly and we now have seven beautiful children, a sick minivan, and a dope crib in the burbs for reals. Believe it. And some other people
0: would want their testimony to sound more or less like this. My Own Conversion Experience As an English teacher, I can tell you that a good story has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. A dark before, an exciting metamorphic during, with the end very much in doubt and a satisfying aftermath in which things get wrapped up. Grouping testimonies have to have all of that going on. When people give their testimonies, they need to be honest, give details, and not be afraid to cast themselves in an unflattering light. The before needs to sound grim, but maybe exciting. Dark. They need to be willing to open themselves up to judgment, to misunderstanding and disapproval, rather than just telling the parts that make them look reassuringly good or that tell a simple, straightforward success story. And I need to keep all the bad stuff in the before bit, and the good in the after part, of course. And complete deliverance has to happen at the very end of the middle bit, or the start of the end bit. Simple black-and-white story, good triumphing over evil. Mine is hard to tell like that. The before part is a real problem. i had done very little bad stuff by age three. And there was lots of bad stuff in the after section. In fact, everything that happened since I was three is after stuff. My life testimony outrages people who don't want to hear the idea that a Christian upbringing simply does not work out terribly well sometimes for some of us, isn't spiritually healthy for everyone, doesn't necessarily even end up connecting one with God. Because a Christian upbringing is always supposed to be a blessing. It has to be. And mine was, in some ways. But there's another side of the story I'm not supposed to be talking about. There are bad bits. And they're not just in the before bit of the story before the climax is reached and tears stream down faces. At all. To begin with, my childhood conversion experience really was pretty mundane. After hearing over and over again at least five times a week of the importance of asking Jesus to wash away my sins and come into my heart, I decided one night that I wanted in on this. Everyone I knew had done it. I was three. My parents were in bed, and I went in and told them what I wanted to do. I was, after all, the only one in the house besides our big black cat, Freddy, who wasn't saved yet. My parents were delighted, thought it was all very cute and encouraged me to go do it. I thought Freddie should do it too, so he wouldn't burn in hell himself. But he wasn't into it. He just curled up at the foot of my bed and took a nap. I went to my bed and knelt in the middle of my mattress in a little nest of blankets there, Freddie beside me. I started by saying in imitation of the kinder of prayers I was used to hearing all week, My blessed Lord Jesus Christ, I ask thee that thou wouldst and then I realized I wasn't sure what exactly the wording had to be after that in order for the whole thing to take and for me to avoid hellfire. All in all, I took three additional trips to my parents' room to ask them about the wording, and each time they shied away from telling me exact magic words because for it to work, it had to be my own words. But I didn't have my own words. This is because I didn't have my own thoughts, on this subject at least. No thinking was going on to generate any of my own words. So, no words either. Just like high school kids writing English essays. So, I just asked, Blessed Lord Jesus, I pray that thou wouldst just please wash away my sins and come into my heart to stay, asking it all and just really thanking thee in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. By age three, I heard my father pray the words in that final sentence something like 3,000 times in our house at a conservative estimate. That's even allowing for the fact that the gray set at lunch was handled by my mother on weekdays during the school year, dad being at work. But I wasn't fooling around. I was characteristically serious. I really wanted in. I would do what it took. I trusted my parents to know about things like hell and sins being very real and about Santa Claus and the tooth fairy not being real and not to tell the other kids whose parents lied to them about magic stuff. I knew very clearly that from birth I had been a sinner, born to sinners, living in a world characterized by darkness and sin, completely at enmity with God. I believed my parents utterly when they told me that this all needed to be fixed by saying this kind of prayer, and that simply saying this one prayer would do it. So I prayed it. I was signing up, because I wanted in, and it all made sense, I was speaking up and joining whatever it was they were in, so I could belong. A few years later, Albert Hayhoe came over and baptized my then-born infant sister and me in our bathtub. Albert believed that you could baptize infants who didn't understand what was happening, unlike some Plymouth Brethren people who believed it was something a mature Christian has to request. The Bible verse quoted to decide to go with the infant baptism side of the issue was the one in the acts of the apostles the apostle in question is paul and his act in this case is saying to the man who'd been his jailer believe on the lord jesus christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house it was the and thy house part that was deemed relevant it meant my parents could baptize their kids i wore a dark blue swimsuit to the occasion as i recall the tub was filled quite high albert hayhoe just leaned me back and pushed my head under, with his warm, wrinkled hand brown from African suns on my forehead. He symbolically drowned, then smilingly resurrected me, saying words I couldn't hear when my head was underwater, nor afterward, with warm bathwater pouring out of my ears. His hair and mustache were gleaming white, and his eyes twinkled behind his glasses. His brothers looked just the same, only without the tan, and with absolutely no twinkle. Note, Voltaire is frequently credited as having said, To learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticize. This goes for mockery, too, or even general comments. When the early copies of this book went out, I found that people didn't necessarily notice that I didn't name the laboring brothers, didn't name the various pedophiles or their victims, or that I'd given pseudonyms to anyone who wanted them they expressed concern and discomfort about the fact that I'd sometimes named some of the key figures in the various Brethren divisions, and the folks who had the most to do with making and keeping our church culture what it was, the power people, men of note, the ones whose names were used as contact names for assemblies. A small group of those got named, mostly for the sake of clarity. I tried telling the stories without names, and it was very confusing. Tried pseudonyms, and it seemed beneath us as Christians to resort to that. Smacked of guilt. You protect the identity of the guilty, right? And stuff that's being sold or freely distributed using the internet isn't private, is it? I felt all this stuff from decades long past was our culture and our history now. And that places, years, and names, and other facts were important. That citation and evidence were required. Sometimes in the high school in which I work, I teach history, and there aren't names, which we don't mention because they're secret, not even Rothschild. To my dismay, many felt that my naming that one name, Hey-ho, Hey-Ho, was some kind of low blow or uncalled for display of trashiness, tacky behavior, disrespectful, evidence of a cheap personality with no class, speaking ill of the dead, exposing that which ought to be kept private, airing dirty laundry, telling it in gath. It's kind of like Catholics who don't really believe any of the dogma at all, but would still be deeply offended if someone said something unflattering about the Pope. I do not have the support of my family, or anyone still inside my meeting culture, in naming that name. I have made them upset at me all over again, reopened that wound. So if you're reading this, and you're an outsider to the group in which I grew up, you'll just have to trust me when I tell you but taking that name of hey-ho in vain just now has cost me. Early twentieth century occultist, Satanist, and junkie Alistair Crowley, he of the Ozzy Osbourne song, was of course raised Plymouth Brethren just like I was, just like George Gow the Acid Bath Killer, and young Alistair was baptized just like I was. In his memoir, writing in the third person, Crowley writes.
11: As the Plymouth brethren practice infant baptism by immersion, it must have taken place in the first three months of his life. Yet he has a perfectly clear visual recollection of the scene. It took place in a bathroom on the first floor of the house in which he was born. He remembers the shape of the room, the disposal of its appointments, the little group of brethren surrounding him, and the surprise of finding himself, dressed in a long white garment, being suddenly dipped and lifted from the water. He has also a clear auditory remembrance of words spoken solemnly over him. Though they meant nothing, he was impressed by the peculiar tone. It is not impossible that this gave him an all but unconquerable dislike for the cold plunge, and at the same time a vivid passion for ceremonial speech. These two qualities have played highly important parts in his development.
0: I know that my baptism is indelibly imprinted on my memory, though I was only a toddler. Once I'd been baptized, I felt great, I belonged, and I was approved of. It was one of those very rare occasions when I knew that I'd made a choice, and the system that was my culture, which decided what was normal for all of us, was embracing and accepting me without reservation. I was doing something it wholly endorsed, and was taking an interest in what it wished me to take an interest in. Now, once I learned how to read, I could be into the Word as well. We were supposed to take an interest in asking the Lord to wash away our sins once and for all, in asking to be baptized, and then finally, in asking for our place at the the Lord's Lord's table and being granted or denied it by that system. The latter meant asking to join and be a member who was allowed to take communion Lord's Day morning. Part of that latter act, of course, involved forswearing association with other churches and their doctrine, and with worldly entertainment, on pain of possibly getting kicked out again, put away from the Lord's table by the men who claim they guarded it in him from defilement. Here is Gordon hayhoe our own brethren Yoda, writing about that years after his death on the Internet. What a privilege it is to remember the Lord in his own appointed way. Though we are not told to invite all believers to his table, yet we know they are all represented in the one loaf. And we can teach them the truth of it, receiving them gladly when we can do so to the glory of God. Romans chapter 15, verses 6 and 7. The Lord himself invites them. But let us bear in mind... That although it is the responsibility of each believer who breaks bread to examine himself, First Corinthians chapter 11 verse 28, it is also the responsibility of the assembly to judge evil in its midst, First Corinthians chapter 5 verses 12 and 13. God's assembly is the pillar and ground of the truth, and soundness in faith as to the person and work of Christ are of vital importance. 1 Timothy 3, verse 15. Because of these things, we have to be careful as to who is received at the Lord's table. Even though an individual Christian may be sound in the faith and godly as to his own personal walk, yet if he knowingly remains in a group where moral or doctrinal evil is allowed— He is having fellowship with the evil, and is defiled thereby, for a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6. Announcing our salvation, asking to be baptized, asking to be let in to the Lord's table. These things were our main rites of passage. Apart from those, there was only being married to someone from the church, baptizing one's own kids, and having one's funeral. That was it unless you were shooting for superstar status and went on missions work, but that was a whole other higher thing reserved for very special Christians. Plymouth Brethren Churches don't have officially trained or accredited or appointed ministers, so for weddings we generally have to either get a friendly pastor from a church not entirely dissimilar to ours in terms of doctrine, or a justice of the peace to tie the knot for our couples. But you don't have to have government papers to officiate when it's time to bury people, so we always handle our own funerals. Can't marry, but can bury. I started going to brethren funerals quite young. I went to quite a number of them by the time I'd reached adulthood. An old guard of faithful brethren were dying, people who sounded like far more colorful personalities than the dour old people who replaced them once they had died off. And we brethren folk are pros at dealing with death. In fact. Death validates our entire world view and outlook on life. Our whole lives are building toward that final, mission accomplished accomplished, Brethren funeral for our heaven bound soul. Some of the warmest, most demonstrative, kindest, accepting, and outgoing behavior I have ever seen from Plymouth Brethren people I've seen at funerals. Hatchets buried, grievances set aside, all of that good stuff. On the other hand, some of the coldest, most exclusive hard-hearted elitism and exclusionism have occurred when deciding who to invite to and who to exclude from things like weddings and baby showers. I have never been asked not to attend a funeral reception, but I have certainly been asked not to attend a wedding reception or two in my time, because of being kicked out for satire. More on that later. personal experiences of god when i was a kid i was quite afraid to lose my belief in god i had been told that regular worldly folk often didn't believe in god so i resolved to maintain my own belief i didn't want to fall short of the standards for belief put forth by my culture and fall from grace within it didn't want to grow up to be just some normal person i was a weird kid i thought all kinds of stuff Before I'd gone to kindergarten, I was not only thinking a lot about whether or not the world would be very different if there weren't a god, but I often wondered if my entire life up until now had simply been a dream, and how one would know. I had horrible, vivid, full-color nightmares, often about church stuff, for most of my childhood. I wondered if there really was a female gender, or if doctors had simply done operations on certain male babies to produce girls. If animals were playing dumb and actually spying on us. If dead people did stuff in vast cities under the ground. If aliens had collected all of the heroes who died in stories, like Robin Hood, and now they were all living happy lives on a distant planet somewhere, rejuvenated by alien technology to be forever young and well. If dreams you had at night then caused things to happen in the course of your day. All kinds of stuff like that. Stuff people didn't seem to want to talk to a little boy about. But I really didn't want to think too much and logic God right out of existence. My father was worried about that, felt this was a genuine concern as to thinking, as to me. Belief in God couldn't stand over much thinking, apparently, so it wasn't thought safe. We really did seem to be doing an awful lot at church to try to make and keep God real, more than simply resting in his reassuring reality. We didn't seem to feel like he made us real. We acted like somehow we made him real. I always thought we seemed to be trying to make him real for other people especially, like Michael Palin in Monty Python's dead parrot sketch, pushing the cage and saying the dead bird had moved when it hadn't. Was that our job? Making God real for other people any way we could? Gradually I started to really feel like I knew God a bit though, as a real person. Someone who stayed real, even if I didn't do a thing to make him so. It felt more and more like we weren't just imagining him into being. Like he had his own thoughts and feelings, quite separate from our own. Children are full-time Imagineers. But despite what adults think, they generally know when something is the creation of their own imaginative faculties. They feel what they imagine, alright. But they know what real is, I think, mostly. So I knew that when we claim to know God... We could easily have been deluding ourselves, making it up, imagining him into being, telling ourselves it had worked the other way around, being superstitious. I've seen no shortage of superstitious behavior and paths of thinking and feeling which have their origins and superstitions in people of all kinds, religious and irreligious people alike. It's pretty human. God is watching. When I was a kid, my experience of church was, of course, that it was normal and proper, not weird at all, not like other people's churches, dependable, reassuring, exactly the same every single day of every single year. Meeting had always been there, had always been just like this in every way, and it always would be. My experience of God, by contrast, was one of constant uncertainty, fear, and paranoia. God was alive. He could change moods based on our choices. God was watching. His standards were impossibly high. He didn't like any of the good stuff you did because it wasn't good enough for him. Regular and normal weren't good enough. We'd better not stop believing in him, or we'd be no better than regular people. And there could be nothing worse than that. What else was the eccentric, empty, somber life for, after all? To be better human beings than the regular folks. So you kept your belief in him going, so as not to fall from the blessed position afforded unto us. But sometimes you really felt how much you needed him. Mum lost the car keys, and the family wouldn't be able to go out shopping until they were found. A church patriarch was going to probably die of a sudden unexplained illness a conservative, had very little chance of winning the prime ministership of Canada, and we all knew what hedonistic horrors liberal prime ministers would inflict upon a once-decent upstanding nation. When stuff like that happened, I'd pray. For hours. I would kneel down beside my bed in my little Trans Am pajamas, and I'd fear that, should I not get what I asked for, that this would be final, clinching evidence that maybe there wasn't really a God listening to me. Mostly, I feared that he was real, though, but wasn't listening to me, was being all Old Testament. So I was praying for God to act in such a way that I could experience him, to see him being real and caring. As it turned out, Mum found the car keys, and Joe Clark did win the election and serve a term as Prime Minister that was just about as long as most pregnancies. But Albert Hayhoe died anyway, leaving our church rudderless and fighting for direction. Without him, Our church group was going to change big time by the time I started youth group in high school. There would now be no conservative elderly patriarch to kindly silence the middle-aged liberals. He'd have gone Gone to to be be with with the the Lord. Lord, who'd left us to work things out for ourselves like that was a good idea. So two to one for God, I guessed. Of course, I didn't believe that answered prayer was any reliable final evidence of the existence of God. God was big, like really big. He did what he liked. So for me, my belief in God has been fueled throughout my life by seeing him in the inexorable slow movement of things in directions other than what humans would choose or mere entropy can explain. Currents, changes in the weather. For example, there was the fairly sudden unforeseen disintegration of my church community right when there was more people coming out than ever before. There'd been some talk of building an addition on our meeting hall while I was in high school. By the time I'd finished university, there certainly was no need of that. It was empty. It seemed almost too horrible, too dramatic, too sudden to be natural. It seemed fictional. To me, it stank of things going on behind the scenes. The whole thing made one believe that there was an entropic pattern, a shape to human error, and one which evil spiritual forces fed on and exploited. It didn't seem at all new. And it certainly didn't seem random, nor inevitable, either. In fact, there seemed to be lessons which, if they had been learned, and attitudes which, if they had been repented of, would have made what happened to us quite impossible. I think it had something to do with failing at love, with thinking we needed to correct and control people instead of understanding them. Then there was my own incremental, unwilling, growing out of my church culture as it was practiced in my area, moving on in thinking, feeling, and living splitting the seams of it like a tiny, constrictive jacket. But my moving beyond it seems unnatural and beyond me today, because I didn't want any of that. I would never have chosen it. I just wanted to make my culture work, marry a beautiful young brother and girl I'd met at Montreal conference, have kids, talk in reading meeting, maybe play guitar at hymnsings. That was it. But the comedic gong show of how aggressively human nature trumped Christian nature in what should have been... Our being inspired to love each other in our local Christian groups? The confusing of our semantics as we built our cultural tower of Bible? The fact that my life has been firmly led away from my church culture straight into an exploration of God that has lasted and which is richer and more profound the deeper I go? All this makes it impossible not to believe in a will behind all of it. To make human beings the only intelligent, aware, involved entities starts to seem ever more naive. I know I'd have remained miserably entrenched in my church culture, but for God dragging me kicking and screaming out of it towards something more real, for which thing he'd built an appetite into me. Being yanked out of it was very traumatic, like being dragged through a hedge backwards and tossed into the deep end of the pool. It wasn't what I was raised to deal with. It wasn't anything the culture was willing to accommodate. No success was predicted by anyone, particularly me, for anyone doing this kind of thing with his life. The best of human forecasting would have suggested that, decades later, I'd have little to say about God now, and little belief in Him, if I strayed from my birth culture's well-trodden paths, that no longer sitting weakly under the indoctrination would result in me waking up and deciding there was no truth in any of it, that I'd certainly not maintain the passion or have sufficient experiences and thoughts to write a book about finding God. And yet... Old stuff is holier than new stuff. By the time I'd gotten a driver's license, I'd sang both the lofty adult hymns quoted here earlier, and the simpler, more entertaining, kid-friendly, story-based ones many hundreds of times over. An obvious benefit of this was that while I was learning English, both spoken and written, the scope of my vocabulary had covered from infancy styles and wording from several different centuries instead of just how people spoke informally in modern times around me in my own daily life. My church culture gave me a whole lot of words. This meant that from before I went to kindergarten, I understood that sore could mean painful and tender, but could also mean very. I knew that fast could refer to speed or could mean deeply or completely. Thank you, a little ship was on the sea. Let could mean allow or it could mean hindrance, to hinder, as in to forbid. Suffer could mean endure pain or hardship, or it too could mean allow, as in the case of the suffragette movement, which wanted women to be suffered or allowed to vote. Jesus bade the disciples, I'd often say, to suffer the children, to come unto him. Sundered, riven, afflicted, smitten, propitiation, surety, bade, wert, recompense, Easy stuff, if you grew up with it. And words like perish, feign, rebuke, sovereign, wretched, billows, glory, and not were all terms I'd heard used quite frequently every single week from before I could talk. In fact, I'd sung those words over and over and memorized Bible verses with that kind of language in them. Since I'd been very small, I'd known how to properly use not only thee, thou, thy, and thine, but also how to do the archaic verb tenses that went along with them. So, hast, wert, doeth, didst, willest, wouldst, saith, pisseth. All this seemed a pretty normal and easy part of each week to me by the time I went off to school. The first time I saw the Amok Time episode of the old Star Trek many years later, with Vulcan matriarch T'Pau talking to Spock, I wondered... Why on Vulcan is she saying the are when she should be saying thou art? That sounds so wrong. Don't they know proper archaic English grammar on Vulcan? It's not like it's hard or anything. Don't they know a subjective pronoun from an objective pronoun? They're Vulcans. They're supposed to be all smart and stuff. At my church, just as one never referred to our Lord on a first-name basis, one never prayed aloud in meeting using the words you or your when speaking to or about God either. It was always thee and thou and wouldst and didst and so on. When people started modernizing things and wanted to change this practice, it eventually contributed to a church division in which almost all the modernizers simply left, or were duly excommunicated, sundering our beleaguered, riven fellowship, depending verily on thy perspective, and where thou indeed foundest thyself sitting, even amidst the rising tumult. The archaic and arcane were godly, familiar and accessible, were affronts to God, As old Mr. Clark said in reading meeting, If praying with thee and thou were good enough for the Lord Jesus himself, who are we to want to pray differently from that precious one who is so worthy of our respect? Hardcore Solemn What all of this meant for me as a child was that God was always and only about leaving behind laughter and sunshine and eye contact and free speech, leaving one's regular language, clothes, and behavior at home, and getting as serious as one could get. Talking, dressing, and behaving like a little funeral director, as if the Christian life of a child was to be attending a lifelong funeral for Jesus. From the youngest age, going into any church situation meant my face and all the rest of me learned to unthinkingly take on a funereal demeanor, It was habit from toddlerhood to carefully shut down everything that made me myself or showed a hint of my personality or emotional inner life. No smiles, nothing like that. That's what it seemed to be all about, not being yourself. No bright colors, too garish. No black either, inappropriate. The Sunday routine unfolded and unfolds today unchanged over the decades. Melody, raised in a gospel hall brethren group almost exactly like my own TW group, tells me,
2: the solemn a cappella thing does not always work for me. I think it has its place if a particular Sunday called for a particularly solemn service, post September 11th perhaps, but most of the time it just feels uninspired and ritualistic. Every Sunday the service happens in the same order: song, prayer, silence, song, prayer, silence, song, prayer, silence for an hour. Then someone will have a word of ministry for 10 minutes or so. If someone is really feeling the spirit, they might throw in some ministry after the second set of song prayer silence.
0: The Lord's Day, the first day of the week, was starting the week off right. Inevitably, throughout the week, your true nature would exert itself and you'd fall from that Lord's Day state of conformity to our culture and need quite a bit of calibration by the next Lord's Day. Often, even Saturday evening was overshadowed by the imminent coming of the Lord's Day. Dress clothes had to be ready, homework had to already be finished as there was no doing it on Lord's Day, and verses had to be memorized beforehand. Tomorrow is the Lord's Day. I once got that lecture for quietly playing the theme from Chariots of Fire on a living room organ. I thought that was silly. I still felt the shame of being reproved, though. We teens walked a fine line of mocking, but also feeling deep shame and terror over the lowered eyebrows of old people who pulled their pants up troublingly high. In many ways, we'd simply shifted the Jewish Sabbath day one day later to Sunday. We certainly felt no need to rest on Saturday, but we firmly believed that Sunday needed to have no work and no entertainment or amusement happening on it, because it was the Lord's day rather than ours. We weren't to do anything that would benefit us on Sunday. We were not to be amused. And you didn't think your own regular thoughts, or feel your own regular feelings at meeting. If the usual thoughts and feelings relating to Spider-Man or Star Wars or junk food or what books you were reading started to cross your heart and mind, you sent them packing. If you were hardcore solemn like me, anyway. We were told that, of course, you can't stop a bird from flying past your head But you can certainly stop it from building a nest in your hair, Radagast. So thoughts and feelings needed to be suppressed. You sat there, unthinking thoughts and unfeeling things, while not doing anything. Jesus died to save you. And in gratitude and honor, you sacrificed being you, in any real way. The only appropriate response to a great sacrifice was, obviously, a great sacrifice. One that you modestly called small and slapped, it's, it's the very, very least, least we can, we can do, do Onto A lasting result of this is that every time I go to a funeral, or go into any kind of religious situation, even if it's one with a cheery peppy one-direction rock band type worship team, my face and posture still do that undertaker dead thing, quite without me noticing. I just turn to stone, and rocking out, or laughing and smiling and dancing, seem incredibly childish and out of place to me. Risible. Wrong. At the first modern worship service I attended many years later, the reflexive funereal face was quite out of place, but it descended upon my features right on cue. Trying to lose it, I found I had to suppress a smirk the whole time. My sister left in tears, the service having triggered a brethren flashback panic attack, I made sure she was okay, sent her on her way, then stayed and did my best not to snicker throughout the service. But I couldn't take it seriously. I felt like Michael of old, disrespecting her husband David the King. They might as well all have been doing the can-can, naked, with their butts painted blue for God as far as I was concerned. For me, the death of Christ was what Sunday morning was about, and it could not have been a more solemn, epic, and dark thing. All this modern church stuff seemed like Spongebob presiding smilingly over a funeral while riding a unicycle and juggling squirrels. So I couldn't stop wanting to laugh. That's exactly the kind of wonderful person I am now. Anne has similar tastes to mine and writes,
3: I didn't feel guilty for attending other churches. Just annoyed because they were so superficial, trying to appeal to be cute and modern and friendly. I found Catholic mass to be less cute as well as less friendly. That was less annoying, but not ultimately helpful. I don't think my programming ruined my ability to enjoy other churches. It was just my own sensibilities that resisted what they were doing. I don't like PowerPoints with song lyrics on them or hip sermons. Now that I'm attending Quaker meetings fairly regularly, I can see that I like it because there are similarities to meeting. An old-fashioned culture but mixed with very liberal views And welcoming to atheists, Buddhists, and Christians, I like that I can have that homey, old-fashioned, unhip culture along with gay, friendly dialogue.
0: Melody is much more able to connect to various worship styles than I am and says,
2: I like visiting churches with modern worship styles, and I like visiting churches with traditional liturgical styles, although I really only get something out of super traditional churchy services at Christmas. It's the novelty that appeals. I like singing Hillsong songs and raising my hands at the big community church here in town. I don't like the songs written by the church worship team because they just become a performance by the team instead of a communal worship experience.
0: Melody is clearly supplementing her Brethren church life with forays into other churches, allowing her to sample the various styles. This is possible in some Brethren groups, but grounds for excommunication in others. The two basic kinds of worship she mentions, modern worship style with a church band playing Disney-sounding stuff, and traditional liturgical services with robes, choirs, organ music, stained glass, and a scripted series of readings and responses— are mostly what one sees when one goes to churches nowadays. A website I used to frequent referred to them as Happy Clappy or Smells and Bells churches. The Brethren style was almost like the latter one, but it was entirely without a pastor or choir and had no altar or incense, ritualistic cups and candles, instrumental music or robes. It was more plain, like a Quaker or Old Order Mennonite service. There were no special services or decorations or anything at all to mark Christmas and Easter. You can't really tell the inside of a Brethren meeting hall from a town council chamber or conference room at a corporation apart from the text on the walls being Bible texts rather than inspirational quotes from elsewhere. All the action is inside the people. You could video and stream Sunday morning services at most churches. Many are videoed and streamed. I think our Brethren routines, though, were pretty much entirely unfilmable. My father always felt that it was somehow sacrilegious to even tape record a person's prayer or a breaking of bread ceremony. Not sure why. I'm not sure I entirely disagree either. I don't for a moment claim to know what God thinks of contemporary worship, and I try not to feel scorn for it when I encounter it. It's sincere people worshipping their God. I don't claim to know that there's something wrong with it. I don't claim to know how God wants to be worshipped. I don't wish to fix or correct that kind of worship. I'm just saying it makes me laugh a lot. And I don't feel it, not even a little bit. So I can't worship like that because it makes me laugh. For me, worship has always meant being silent and still and serious. And most importantly, being inward and introspective. It's a form of meditation. I can't get into anything else. I've tried. I want to leap out of my seat literally scream at them to Uh, shut shut up up for for 30 30 seconds seconds so so i can can pray. pray it wasn't really collective worship at all for most of us growing up it was the most private of things it was a room full of people meditating and shutting each other out imagining no one else was in the room we got together and then we opened our hearts to god often we shut our eyes and it was rude to stare the other people weren't important we weren't important when it worked We lost sight of ourselves and other people entirely. I think it was meditation in the most literal sense of the word. A band playing music would have been the most annoying of distractions from that. We needed the quiet. We needed the time. We needed space to open our hearts. Whenever at school we had to do a moment of silence for someone who died or for Remembrance Day, it felt very, very familiar for young me to do this. There was something familiar and soothing about a period of quiet reverence. It was less easy for my fidgeting classmates who didn't generally do that kind of thing in the course of their week. I'd been punished for fidgeting from a very young age and had learned to sit extremely still and quiet many times a week for an hour at a stretch long before I ever went into my first day of kindergarten. When I see kids today needing to check their phone twice during the National Anthem, it makes me feel very old. We are creatures of habit, so to this day... If I go to any kind of religious thing, I still can't connect to ecstatic, triumphant moods, songs, or colorful diatribes, friendliness, jokes, slang, one guy running things, people smiling during sermons, and most of all, I want it to be quiet so I can go inside myself and open up in that somber, silent, odd feeling, which is what worship has always been to me. Worship was the start and the heart of the Brethren week, month, and year. It ran deep. I know it didn't touch some of the people my age, but I was deeply into it, doing it our way. I'd heard there were other kinds of worship, and I fervently hoped to never be subjected to any of them. And I never was. Not until years later. The Other Kind of Worship Not all churches are anything like mine. They have their own, often quite different problems and approaches to things. I'm no expert on that. A brethren I view of cheating on my church with modern ones. Here's what contemporary worship feels like for someone like me. Some places, people don't even bring their Bibles or any hymn books with them, and really, they're being more of an audience than anything, waiting for their emotions to be played like a piano by a team of paid professionals. It's not about going inside yourself and thinking about our Lord suffering and dying and kind of feeling responsible and also some empathy for him in that situation. It's a different kind of good feeling. It's about being swept up in what the people in the room are doing, I guess. For me, it looks like it's supposed to be about the truly serious Christians throwing their hands up in the air like they really care and making a forest of blissfully swaying arms while singing godified teenage girl love songs that have very few words and a simple tune so they can be repeated over and over. Perhaps I am too harsh. I've heard these other hymns, these 20th century hymns, which are cranked out by the hundreds, called 7-Eleven songs by people who are every bit as smug as I am because they seem to have something like a seven-word line being repeated what seems like 11 times over and over. There are far more of these being written than could ever be widely sung. They're dead simple to learn, and they're all very similar. The lyrics are different from what I grew up singing. They're often about how much we enjoy coming together to sing songs, about how much we enjoy coming together to sing songs, about how much we enjoy coming together to sing songs, or about God being really, 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 really big, To me, they sound vaguely euphoric in a remarkably unfocused, slightly insincere, overacted way. There doesn't seem to be the accustomed guilt or self-erasure that would make me feel at home. Unlike our dusty old hymns, you could sing these new songs to a girl and she'd have no idea it was supposed to be sung to Jesus, your heavenly boyfriend. For the purpose of this audiotronic recordinage, I have tried to create a sound experience which will go some way toward demonstrating how out of place, how jarringly romantic, sexual, and downright inappropriate the lyrics of contemporary worship hymns generally sound to those of us who are steeped in the womb in hymns characterized by an ancient reverent solemnity. Contemporary hymns don't sound hip to us so much as they sound awkward. Embarrassing to sit in the same room as.
10: Draw close to you. Yeah.
8: Never let me go. I'll
10: lay it all down again. To say that your friend.
8: You are my desire.
10: No one else will do.
8: Nothing else can take your place to feel the warmth
10: of your embrace. Nothing else can take your place to feel the warmth of your embrace. Help me by the way. Bring me back to you. You're all I want. You're all I want. You're
8: all I want.
0: Another attempt at the same thing yields this result. Is no doubt downright sacred to someone who will be deeply confused as to why for me it just isn't simply packed with significance and memories of deeply cathartic hands in the air to show god you care worship services why for me it's hilarious how can you not love that hymn people will demand of me hard to know how to even answer a question like that i do not love it sam i am it's not my heart Tempts me to sing it to a girl and see if she has a clue it's supposed to be sung to God. Tempts me to judge my fellow Christians because I can't seem to get into it. Tempts them to judge me for the same reason. So is the song wrong or me? I suspect maybe neither. Or both, I'm not sure. There are far sadder, stupider, and more harmful things than Christians merely being wrong about things, unfortunately. I have no idea how teenage me would have reacted to sitting in on a more conventional, contemporary church service. It never happened even once, we weren't allowed, and we didn't want to. In the early 1980s, most local churches hadn't yet modernized their worship styles. But if I'd have witnessed then what is the norm in churches today, of course the main thing would have been that the whole time I was there, I would have felt horribly, fatally aware of consorting with infidels. I would have been totally weirded out by the fact that it looked like I didn't even know where to show up Sunday morning. I would have sat there in abject terror that someone at my church would find out and I'd be put away from the Lord's table. Even today, with no conscience qualms at all about attending whatever church I want, contemporary church services are things I have a strong adverse reaction to. It's a taste thing, and a deep psychological thing. It's not something one gets over in a year. It's not something one prays for healing from and sees fade away like magic. Taste and worship style is deeply personal. It's a real room divider. Other modern church worship hymns I've heard actually mention Christ by name and are more intimate and say things like,
12: Your love is Your friendship is intimate soft intimate I feel am moving to the rhythm of your grace Your fragrance is intoxicating in our secret place ¡Me Our
0: worship wasn't like that, but it always worked for me. It was a much less soft and sweet and a far more dramatic, tragic, male friendly, dark, heroic tale. It was about blood, spit, sweat, vinegar, and agony in the thirsty dust. There was nothing intoxicating in how Jesus smelled in our imaginations while we envisioned him dying under a Mediterranean sun, racked with pain, sweating and bleeding in agony. And we would have blushed to sing about anything at all being spread wide or of moving to the rhythm and of being intimate with God in our secret place. So me going out to a modern church is like grabbing up a bunch of sleeve-tattooed fans at a death metal concert, transplanting them to a concert put on by the latest Bubblegum Pop-Tart, and trying to get them into it. Trying to make Lamb of God fans rock out to Justin Bieber. The old Victorian and the few slightly newer Revival-era hymns that we meeting folks sang were, clearly, all done in an easily definable musical style. They had a specific musical sound, Certain instruments were used and others not, so no banjos or kazoos, no distorted guitars. Musically, they were part of a genre, just like rap, metal, jazz, country, or blues are. They were part of what is now thought of as the traditional church music genre. They had to be, or we wouldn't have accepted them. And they were, so to us, the old hymns sounded normal and right. Slow, somber organs and choirs in the other churches sounded appropriate to us, too. Right and good. Too good, in fact. We wanted them for our church services. And they were ostentatious and appealed to human pride and the senses and moods of man. So we sacrificed them for God instead. But they were old and reverent. We approved. And if someone did a funny song or just a non-church song but used that church sound... Well, we felt mocked personally, because it was about our identity. We felt that it was them, those sacrilegious people, mocking us, the religious people. Them against us, us against them. They could have their disgusting rock music with its devil guitars and its sex beats. The hymn sound was ours. Back in the day, when Ray Charles speeded up,
8: There's a man going
10: round taking a
0: a traditional hymn he'd grown up with at church, and made it into his hit song,
8: Well, I got a woman way over town, she's good to me, oh yeah.
0: This was seen by church folk across the world as stealing tunes from God and as absolute sacrilege, disgraceful. People were so angry, in fact, that they just knew that God was as offended by it as they were, and they expected that Ray Charles fellow to be stricken blind from on high or something. We brethren people were superstitious about our little flock hymn book hymns in particular, and the music style that went with those. Most of them had come from the hymnals of the other Victorian churches anyway, but still, no new hymn was ever going to be welcome at our door. We preferred something like Abide With Me, in which lyricist Henry Francis Light takes seven agonizing stanzas to slowly die of tuberculosis. Nowadays, people who like contemporary worship music often feel that they're way beyond that dusty old attitude. They can cope with some quiet drums and some melodic electric guitars after all. And they like new stuff. After all, there are hundreds of Maranatha songs written every week, mostly by the same five guys. And any music can be worship music, right? It's not a style. The fact is, contemporary worship hymns are, clearly, sung song in a style. Musically, they are part of a genre, just like rap, metal, jazz, country, or blues. No matter what the instrumentation is, the tone of voice is supposed to remain fairly Billy Corgan.
8: Today is the greatest day I've ever known.
0: It has to. Or it's disrespectful, offends people, because then it's not being done right. Because they're superstitious about that vocal style, about that sound, and it's about their identity. So if you mess with it, or even just don't like it, they get kind of hurt. But you could do any song with that contemporary church sound. here's how to transgenre this 90's misery fest song into something that would not sound out of place in most local churches. First, remove the distortion from the electric guitar. Well, in fact, let's just replace it entirely with an acoustic guitar. Then let's put a nice shirt on the sweaty shirtless drummer and have him play with a lot less elbow grease. Then and nod in the direction of traditional church music, we need to make an organ part share stage equally with the guitar. Those two can stand side by side now and smile beautifully at everyone. All this will help us to subtly milk the testosterone out of the mix and nudge the whole thing towards something far more middle of the road. In fact, let's make sure everyone's wearing nice shirts and smiling distantly at nothing while avoiding eye contact and concentrating on those two chords. And then, this is crucial, let's take the song out of that depressing, discordant key. Let's just shift it up a couple of frets until it's using the first two chords that anyone learns when they first pick up a guitar. There! That's getting more inoffensive and unremarkable by the moment. Now, an unbroken litany of crowd direction and kumbaya chorus, and we're good to go. Because of my roots and my nature, when I go to a more modern church, it feels like they are enacting a blood-free, tidy, clean, well-scrubbed, sweat-free, sweet-smelling, plastic, deathless celebration of Jesus as a concept. Or they are gushingly declaring fangirl crushes on a Jesus who is a totally awesome, super cool chill guy who went to heaven and never died. Not really. Which is so awesome, right? And it sounds to my critical brethren ears, trained to judge and correct... Like they feel that laying it all down for him or surrendering completely to him is some kind of big magnanimous act, one they have to psych themselves up for and which is really terribly selfless and important and should definitely be celebrated in song over and over. Not so much Christ's sacrifice of his life for them, but of theirs for him, the holiest of acts, their surrender of their sweet, special weekly lives, God having to wait lovingly and patiently for them to do it so we can start to work in and through them god didn't wait for me to surrender anything in any way to him he grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and tore me right out of my birth culture without asking first he didn't wait for me to get it he didn't wait politely until i surrendered all surrender childhood me would not have been able to relate to that surrender-all thing any more than adult me can't. I'd always felt like I was in God's clutches from time immemorial and that he always did with me and mine whatever he wanted and got what you out of me he felt like. I'd always felt like my struggling with, my running from, or pretending I could somehow hold things back or keep secrets from God was just me being stupid, like Jonah or Balaam, I always felt very much that I was nothing more and nothing less than a creation of his, no matter if I struggled, strayed, or piously surrendered. I've been raised to see Peter and Paul and Jonah as great examples of it not mattering a bit how hard you tried to struggle to escape God, that he had you, so not to kid yourself that you could run away or shut him out. Aslan was on the move, and he wasn't a tame lion. That was my experience he could do whatever he liked with your life, even if he needed you to die, especially if he needed you to die. It was absolutely going to happen. I knew I'd never been my own to begin with, and that I'd never escape him, no matter what he wanted to do with my life. As a teenager, I begged him not to send me to Africa, not to leave me still looking for a wife at 36 years of age, never to let me get excommunicated from my church culture. I felt like I had nothing and no one to magnanimously surrender to him. Best to try to get along with him, of course, but surrender? Surrender what? What was left? He had me, by my very life. But for his indulgence, I knew from a young age, I would not have been able to even draw my next breath. He controlled absolutely everything about us, and we weren't to make any of our own choices, and we were supposed to get off on that. God was to be our Christian gray. Freedom was for sinners. Christians were to be the slaves of God. So we didn't just feel like we turned our lives over to Christ from time to time whenever we nobly remembered to and then sang about it. We were wholly indoctrinated to the point of not knowing how to think or feel outside the bounds of church expectations. We didn't, many of us, know even who we were, not outside of who and what our cultures told us we were. If our culture told us we were bad, we knew we were. If it didn't understand what we were doing and was troubled, then we were troubled. If they praised us, we knew we were doing well. I'd never lived a month free from my church culture. So the idea of giving up some purely theoretical freedom and sacrificing it to God would have made no sense at all to me. Even today... I am as likely to sing a song vowing to surrender myself to breathing air or to being subject to gravity or having two legs as I am to surrendering all to God. So any time I go into a church with modern worship music singing about surrendering all like it's some big thing, I feel like I'm witnessing some other religion entirely. I truly believe that these are sincere people who are expressing their devotion to the same God I worship and that our God probably likes a lot of what they're doing. But that's a belief, a head thing. I can't feel it much. The two worship styles feel to me like different religions. Mine always felt good to me, and continues to feel good when I revisit it in a formal Sunday context. The modern one feels bad, feels foreign, like someone else's religion, feels almost like a different god entirely is being worshipped, a Disney god, one utterly ill-equipped to deal with how dark the weather gets inside me, for us. Worship was about feeling responsible for the sufferings and indignities of Jesus and kind of suffering with him, trying to give him company while he suffered. Because it was, as we sat and reminded ourselves, completely and only our fault. He wouldn't have had to die at all except for us. So we felt as grateful and reverent and as shamed and sad as we could work ourselves up to feeling, out of gratitude and respect, and we sang about that. A typical Brethren hymn we sang Sunday morning said,
8: What was it, blessed God, led thee to give thy song, to yield thy well-beloved for us by sinners? Was love unbounded led thee thus to give thy well be love for us? To give thy well-being love for us. What led thy Son, O God, to leave thy throne? shed his precious blood to suffer and to die. T'was love unbounded led thee thus to give thy well be love for us to give thy well-being.
0: That one was my positive favorite Sunday morning hymn. Women were not allowed to give out or choose hymns for us to sing during church. That was for men only. I always found it interesting then that hymns like the one that I just sang a bit of for you would be included in Brethren hymn books, though they had been written by women. It seemed to me a far greater honor to have one's very own hymn sung by everyone for centuries than to merely be allowed to suggest that the group maybe sing a hymn. There are many brethren groups which do allow women to give out hymns, especially nowadays. Not mine, though. Another hymn with a typical Sunday morning flavor that I always enjoyed was, T'was
8: on that night of deepest woe When darkness round did thicken When through deep waters thou didst go and for our sins was stricken. Thou Lord, did seek that we should be, with grateful hearts remembering thee. Thou Lord, did seek that we should be, with grateful hearts remembering thee. How deep the sorrow, who can tell Which was for us endured O love divine, which broke the spell That had our hearts allured With heart and conscience now set free It is our joy to think of thee With heart and conscience now set free It is our joy to
0: think of thee We weren't allowed Christmas trees, of course, but nevertheless, we drearily sang that hymn to the tune of O Christmas Tree or O Tenenbaum. We sang it at half speed and no one noticed. The darkness, the night, the deep waters, the sorrow, the shamed gratitude, all that felt really good. It was purgative, redemptive, cathartic, because sad feels good in a very ancient and universal human way. Sad songs make us feel good. Sad books make us feel good. Sad television programs make us feel good. Sad movies are our absolute favorites. They win all the awards. It's like that frozen, rocky heart of yours, the one you've been keeping locked tight all week, can suddenly melt, and in so doing, unclench, open, and relax into a hot goo. And that quiet, intense inner release is a very zen sort of relief. You don't walk over hot coals. Instead, the cold ashes of your heart reignite and glow warmly in there. Suddenly, you are hot coals inside There is pleasant lava in your veins. It is hotly euphoric, and it is almost entirely silent and internal. I can only imagine how incomprehensible and time-wasting our worship would no doubt seem to people not accustomed to it, all inward and silent and somber, like sitting watching Buddhist monks while they meditate, punctuated by occasional dirgeful songs. But it always worked for us, took us to a special place. I wrote a song one time about these two worship styles.
8: I was raised to hang my head in shame, right on cue for an hour Sunday mornings, and sing songs of pain and reverent self blame. So that's what I did. And I'm used to that Do you like it all Or are the things you are more fond of Can we reach a point Where we're singing to ourselves About how we feel Live and believe But leave you out Almost entirely I don't know what you'd like No, I don't know What you'd like Went to a church Filled with weeping Hipster youngsters selfieing teens Singing songs about them Singing Yeah, singing songs About liking singing songs That's what they did and I wasn't feeling that. But do you like it all? Or the things you are more fond of? Can we reach a point where we're singing to ourselves about how we feel, live and believe, but leave you out almost entirely? I don't know. What you like No, I don't know What you like Cause we've got songs About sweat, blood and pain Debasing death And about our sin and shame And we've got songs
10: About how awesome
8: we are feeling To gladly surrender Our sweet Special lives, but do you like it all, or the things you are more
10: fond? Of? Can we reach a point where we're singing to ourselves
8: about how we feel, live and believe, but leave you out almost entirely? I don't know what you'd like. I don't know what you like, so I really hope that you like this.
0: Pulled Out of Yourself Once I became a teacher, I read a book called Reading Don't Fix No Chevys. It's by Jeffrey Wilhelm. It's about why reading is tough for some kids, the ones who want to fix Chevys in particular, boys, the ones who have so much trouble reading nowadays. It's said that for strong readers, the story just draws them in without them realizing it. They forget their problems, they effortlessly imagine the story unfolding, and they essentially lose themselves in the activity of reading. Like a feather getting swept up in a stiff wind and flying away, or a leaf getting caught in a strong current in a stream and racing down the river. This is sometimes called flow. You can experience it in any activity that pulls you out of yourself. Even exercise and work or social interaction. Things you don't have to think about doing much and which in fact stop you from thinking too much, if that's what you've been doing. They pull you in. They let you rest from the ruts your thoughts and feelings tend to spin their tires in. They take you somewhere else for a while. Thing is, this flow experience of opening up and relaxing is mainly connected with any number of things we weren't supposed to be doing growing up in the meeting. Dancing, music, sex, partying, concerts, stuff like that. Most people have something that draws them out of themselves. Brethren kids, for whom this was sports, perhaps had it a bit easier than I did. Of course, it must have stung for them not to be allowed to watch hockey, the Olympics, baseball, and football on TV. And I know they wanted to go see NHL games and so on, but at least they could play sports, which they loved. For me it was stories. The TV was removed from the house when I was five, and the books I read were looked at fairly closely. Stories took me places. For example, without ever having seen an episode, I was incredibly into Doctor Who, based on reading the thin little novelizations they made of each story arc. Many Doctor Who stories have alien monsters in them, and one story arc took place on a planet called Peladon, which had a monster in the dungeons that attacked people. The synopsis on the back of the book started out with the words, The Beast Roared, and my father decided that if this book had the Beast of the Apocalypse from the Book of Revelation in the Bible in it, that this was irreverent. He asked me to stop reading Doctor Who books. This was a bitter pill to swallow, especially as I knew very well that the book had nothing to do with Revelation. It reminded me of when he broke our Smurfs tape because of the song Smurfing Beer.
12: won't get drunk and it isn't you won't get drunk and it isn't
0: See, I knew that the lyrics said, you won't get drunk and it isn't dear." So it was about a clearly non-alcoholic drink. It was still, my dad felt, a bad testimony to listen to songs about beer. So I often read, with my books held, so the cover was covered, to keep from having it taken from me. And I listened to music, with headphones only. Ruth, born into the same group from which I sprang and was ejected from, was another one who loved reading more than anything else and had trouble getting in her own science fiction reading
4: that activity for me is and always has been reading getting swept away into another world whether that world were a starship middle earth narnia or england of long ago losing myself in the lives and loves and struggles of the characters loving and hating them knowing them better than i knew real life people living a double life through books this was never, never encouraged within my birth culture. Reading to improve your mind and your faith, reading that was encouraging and edifying and profitable, was highly encouraged. If you were an intellectual Berean, you would be reading Darby and Callie and Macintosh. If you were in quest of good written ministry but not quite intellectually advanced enough for the founding fathers' writings, you had endless choices of BTP publications of Bruce Anstey's written exposition on every possible Scriptural topic. If you were a teen contemplating entering the world of courtships, you would be reading Passion and Purity and I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And if you just wanted a brethren approved fictional work, you could choose between Voice Across Time and In Search of a Song, both of which were set in the meeting. But reading that made you forget everything, that transported you to another time and place that was enjoyable, that was dangerous, could cause you to take your eyes off the Lord. Maybe even stumble. What's worse, your reading choices could be a stumbling block to a brother or sister. I had to read Star Trek on the sly, hiding my books under sofa cushions and disguising them with construction paper covers, and I didn't discover the worlds of Narnia and Middle Earth until I was an adult because these books were forbidden.
0: I still have my Christian books from childhood, The Sugar Creek Gang, Alexi and the Mountain Treasure, and the Jungle Doctor series, Sunshine Country. Stuff like that. I liked them okay, but I also needed robots and pirates and cowboys and monsters and muscle men with swords and capes and things on occasion to really pull me out of myself and my grey life into other worlds where things were more exciting and less stifling. Colorful stuff. And Christian books didn't have robots or monsters or private eyes. They didn't usually even have guns or swords in them. If there were any, they weren't usually in the hands of the heroes. Flow is connected with the idea of passion. I don't mean romantic passion so much as getting really into something with your whole heart. Now, our parents claimed they wanted us to get into Thursday night Bible reading instead of watching the playoffs, reading comics, playing Nintendo, watching the A-team, or going to a really good movie or concert like our friends at school. I don't know if my parents really wanted this as much as they claimed or not, or what they would have done if we'd expressed anything like hockey playoff enthusiasm for church attendance. I do know that they felt worried and protective of us if anything but the things of the Lord were giving us this experience of forgetting ourselves. They felt like we were cheating on God, if that happened, inviting divine retribution and judgment, the withholding of blessing at the very least. Really, I think they were quite content so long as we simply showed up and sat sedately at meeting. It was okay, even if you'd mentally checked out, so long as you looked dutiful and meek. It was all okay, so long as we showed no more passion and fanatic devotion to anything else either. As long as we stayed out of trouble, didn't stray, didn't party, didn't entertain ourselves, didn't give the appearance of being someone who did, didn't get the reputation of being someone who might. I think this made many of us fear really getting into anything, and that some of us still have real trouble doing that. Dancing, for example, laughing at live comedy, or standing up and singing and cheering at a concert. When we do, we're kind of looking over our shoulders to see if it's okay. We feel terribly self-conscious. I think also that we feel a bit awkward that church stuff doesn't always hold quite the same thoughtless, stress-relieving fun for us that these other things do. We must be lesser Christians to be so easily pulled in by these lesser things, these unedifying things of this world. Going for that flow people in charismatic churches, of course, were doing the very opposite of what we were doing at mine. Rather than quiet, reverent contemplation, they were overtly going for that flow experience as much as possible. An outpouring rather than an interning. Noisy projection rather than quiet reflection. Some of them prayerfully sought experiences like uncontrollably laughing, barking, sneezing, crying, fainting, or falling down in the spirit often as evidence of salvation reverence silence and doctrinal correctness aren't really the thing there in fact what churches of this kind are often looking to provide is what anthropologists call an orgiastic experience the word has nothing to do with orgy nor orgasm but simply means that you get caught up in a cathartic emotional experience They're looking to experience an outpouring of emotion and will use stage lights, keyboard music, dancing, and slideshows with pictures of sunsets, mountains, and the ocean as catalysts if necessary. They'll use them to make prayers to God sound better. Whatever works is fair game. In many of these cases, the emotional outpouring is not simply evidence of something deeper going on, nor is it seen as merely a side benefit or a reward or anything, but it is the very point itself. The spirituality of the people involved and their connection to God are being measured by how deeply they get into the emotional experience. The catharsis becomes the focus, the outpouring of emotion, the point. In fact, I think you can actually get to the point where the outpouring of emotion is in and of itself both what is being served and what is actually being worshipped. For people recovering from drug or alcohol addiction, I think the attempt can be made to get high on Jesus instead. what I think really doesn't matter. Naturally, people in my church would judge this kind of charismatic thing quite harshly and say that instead of correct thoughts about God being the point, an emotional experience had become the point. I would once have been right there with them saying the same thing, but I eventually discovered that we somber folk too often have our own dubious not-really-about-God reasons for doing our religious stuff our way too. Some people grew up worshiping God brethren-style, but were simply served far less well by it than I. Some seemed to be more extroverted, emotional, and charismatic people. Some were loud people, or people who didn't like to be still. Many of these were the very first ones who left, and went to more charismatic, performance-based modern services, and loved all that stuff. But not me. I was brethren, through and through. I was in it for the long haul.